I picked up a book this morning. Um, <clears throat> it's an older book. I wonder when it was done, actually. 2008. Came out in 2008. <clears throat> Ajahn Sachito. It's called Kama and the End of Kama. That's a great title, isn't it? It's really worth reading. So I just picked it up and just went, hmm, and read this little piece. This is after I'd already listened to a couple of Dhamma talks. I get, a, I get up early on Sunday if I'm going to be speaking and just listen to Dhamma talks and um, <clears throat> immediately fell asleep. <laughs> so I thought, I thought I better, I tried it twice. <laughs> I better pick up a book and see what inspires me. So I'll read out of this, not, not right now, but I will in a bit, just about five minutes. Um, but it, it speaks about, Ajahn Sachito talks about our tendency to name our uh, feelings as a way to justify not actually reflecting on what we're doing. I'll give a couple of examples here in a, in a moment, just simple examples. But, um, and, and he encourages us to shift our attention to, rather than naming, shift our attention to designating, redesignate. So I'll explain that. Here, so um, I'll give two examples, see if I can remember them actually. Alistair and I are driving, we're down to one car right now, one of our cars is in the shop. So we're sharing a, a car and um, I like, I'm used to, we're sharing what is usually what I call my car. They're both our cars, but this is the one that I drive most of the time. And so his car is in the shop, and I'm used to when the, the gas tank gets down to about three quarters of a tank, I fill it up. Because I, I do not like, <laughs> I get anxious if I'm like driving with the grandkids or something and I forgot to fill up the tank and I'm gonna, take them to the beach or whatever. I like to always be ready. So I, I never let it go. I try not to let it go past three quarters of a tank. And it got to three quarters of a tank and I'm like, oh, Alistair's using the car too. You know, I'll just, he'll, he'll fill it up. He has a gas station right next to where he works. He'll fill it up. <laughs> so um, I get in the car this morning and it's empty. It, and uh, I pushed the little, now I've used the car back and forth too, but I'm just like, uh, Alistair will notice. So I pushed the little button that tells us how many miles you've got until it's completely empty. And it says zero. <laughs> so I named this feeling <laughs> to, it's his fault. <laughs> Now, after reading this, I'm like, oh, yeah, there's ill will, you know? And so rather than name it as his fault, 
I notice I redesignate this my attention to what is going on what am I what's making me suffer and it's ill will and it's projecting rather than investigating which is my first initial habit I blame and then I don't have to investigate I can just go damn it you didn't fill up the tank and he can go well neither did you but we didn't have to get that far uh, because I'm I just read this book <laughs> and it said don't do that <laughs> so in Ajahn Sajita talks about this is a really valuable thing um, we don't have to then name ourselves as being bad because the first initial feeling was irritation it's not bad that's just a habit and it's really, really valuable to see it so we can redesignate our attention to go toward investigating. What is it that I'm doing? Oh, it's ill will. My tendency, there's an unwholesome tendency. Hmm, I don't have to do that. Now, I did slip out as we were driving that I really don't like that I now have to go to the stop at the gas station because it bites into my time to be down at the center. And then I immediately shut my mouth because I realized what I was doing again. You know, he probably didn't like it either because I didn't good, fill the gas tank. Oh, okay. That's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's a benefit of reading this book <laughs> on sale now. <laughs> Free, freely distributed, actually. I'm not sure if we have any more of these downstairs because it is an older book, but you can get it online, I believe, probably. Forest Publications. Dot org. Um, anyway, um, another. I just wanted to give another example uh, before I, I read his teaching here. Um, I've been. I shared last a couple of weeks ago about um, a story about my mother having back surgery and needing to come live with me for a couple of weeks. Um, and I'm not going to go into that. But prior, a build up to that years before. She had to have that particular uh, back surgery. She had another problem in her back, which was the beginning of degeneration that led to the big one. But she had to have another uh, back surgery for hernia. So she had a herniated disc in her back and um, a lot of pain and, and whatnot. And so she had took her to the doctors. They, it was an in and out process took her home and one of the doctors, I mean, one of the um, encouragements that the doctor gave her was not to bend over for a good solid week. So let people help you. And my mom wasn't somebody that let people help her very much. And um, this was a source of irritation for me because I was the youngest daughter and in our family, in her family, the youngest daughter has always been 
assumed would be taking care of the elders as they got. And, and so that naturally fell into my lap and I took that on. And so in taking care of her, I hear this instruction, don't bend over, don't lift any heavy items. And so I, t I take her home um, and um, put her to bed. And uh, actually she hadn't gotten to bed yet. And I take her home to put her to bed. And I'm, I'm telling her to, okay, just, why don't you just stand there for a minute and I'll get your pajamas out. And um, I'm looking in her drawer and I'm pulling out her pajamas and I hear her go, oh, look what I can do. And she bends over and picks something up from the floor. And I just, this is, this is before my Buddhist practice. <laughs> um, and it panicked me and I turned around and immediately named it as you are being, um, you know, you're, you're being irresponsible. You're gonna wreck your back. I didn't say, say that. I just, but that's what was going through my mind. I just turned around and I, I said, what are you doing? Stop. And she said, I am, I'm just delighting that I haven't been able to bend over for years. And now look what I can do. And she did it again. And I took her pajamas and I threw them as hard as I could at her. And then they're just pajamas, it didn't hurt, but it shocked her, you know? And today, what I missed in that by not reflecting on my own ill will, like, yeah, okay, she did something that could have harmed her, it didn't, but it, it could have. But what I missed in all of that was that she was so happy to be able to reach down to the floor again, something she hasn't been able to do without excruciating pain for years. I totally missed it. You know, that we were able to laugh about this years later, so it doesn't bring up uh, regret uh, for me or shame, but that's just an example of what we miss. We don't see the world as it is. Now, it could have hurt her back, and even still, if it had hurt her back, I didn't have to get angry at her. But you know, I, I named her as being irresponsible. That was stupid thing to do. Get in bed right now, you know, and, and then stormed, stormed out. I didn't quite go that far. It did help her get dressed and all of this, but I could see on her face that she was sad, you know, that I, I couldn't be in the, mo the true moment with her. Um, and we do this all the time throughout our days. Now, not necessarily with anger, but anger is one, um, but, but another could be, um, you know, just greed, wanting something it, or delusion. It has something to, it has to do with the tendency toward our um what keeps us trapped from seeing the world as it truly is and it narrows down our ability to respond in a kind loving and appropriate wise way so it's always to our benefit 
and hopefully we can learn to recognize the benefit of recognizing when these tendencies come up. And as we take on the Buddhist practice, these teachings and train our mind with meditation and how we are within groups of people, as we, as we take on this training, we start to see more and more these tendencies that lead to our suffering and the suffering of those around us. It's not a bad thing. It doesn't mean we're bad. It means we're waking up to the way out of suffering and toward awakening in every moment to full enlightenment. It comes in steps. It takes practice, it takes resourcefulness, it takes honesty, it takes a great deal of integrity and we can build on our integrity if we're willing to be honest with ourselves and take on the challenge of facing what are these habits that get me caught. So with that, I'll read this bit from Ajahn Sachito. Latent tendencies. Taken as a whole, the practice of parami, which are uh, steps to awakening, sets up powerful values that direct personal intent skillfully. And there are benefits, attitudes and energies that go towards deceit, malice and covetousness get less food. And as our intention gets straightened, this affects how we regard the world, because the intention behind what we look at or touch and why is a major part of what designates experience. As that purifies, we see things in a way that untangles our world. For example, rather than looking at life in terms of what we can get out of it, if we look at what we can give, rather than wondering how long does it take, we incline towards valuing patience and resolution. Then rather than speculating as to whether we are admired or ignored, we settle in awareness of our integrity. So our naming of the world gets shifted to redesignate it as a vehicle for value and liberation, rather than a me, them, gain loss ride on a bouncing ball. The more you hold to the values of a skillful life, the more that purifying process reveals dispositions and tendencies that are latent and unresolved. These latent tendencies include basic inclinations such, such as such sensuality, irritation, opinionatedness, and conceit, which may not be revealed as such an ordinary, as such in ordinary life, because as our ways of operating avoid a thorough investigation of our inclinations. This is why we practice resolution. We make commitments to acts of value and integrity especially when things aren't going in line with our wishes. In this respect, Buddhist practice isn't about peak moments. It's about training. It's about strengthening and broadening commitment to maintaining standards and virtues, even when the peak experiences aren't rolling in 
and your unacknowledged tendencies are rising up. One frequently used context of training is just that of living with others. In a lot of Buddhist monasteries, as well as in the world in general, there's a good amount of working with, with and being with other people. We build, we do management, we wash the dishes, as well as converse and meditate, often in a group situation. The mind is thus held in a shared world, something which doesn't follow purely individual dispositions and energies. Through this, we get to see that our naming, our inter interpretations of what is normal or friendly, our attitudes around leadership and independence, our sensitivity to other people, it all differs. Seeing and responding to this means that a lot of patience, kindness, and commitment to clearing biases have to get generated. The point isn't even to have a wonderfully harmonious community, but to loosen attachment to one's own naming. It's that loosening which gives the mind the room and the encouragement to move beyond its habitual standpoints. I appreciate this integrity, this integrate, excuse me, I appreciate this integrated approach, especially as I didn't start out from that perspective. In the monastery in Thailand, in which I began my training as a Buddhist monk, there was a section set aside for intensive meditation practice. Monks in the monastery would go into this section in order to review and deepen their understanding of Dhamma. They generally spend a couple of weeks in there and then return to what they were part of. I was one of the few Westerners, and three or four of us there, we we're all new to Thailand meditation and monastic life. We had nothing to do, no get-togethers, nowhere else to go. Conversation wasn't allowed. It was, as you might guess, pretty stressful being in a small hut all day trying to meditate and watching the mind jump over the monastery wall for hours at a time. The one thing that we did do together was go out on alms round in silence every morning. It was our only occasion of being together in the entire day. It should have been easy just walking along receiving offerings, but instead all kinds of stuff stuff that wasn't on the enlightenment script came up the first person in my life who said he'd like to kill me with an axe if possible was a fellow monk <laughs> well i did walk on alms round at a pace that he felt was too slow well he had to walk behind me as for me i can't recall having much of a violent impulse until i became a serious meditating monk <laughs> but i could feel violent towards the monk behind me in that file. After all, the Buddha said we should walk quietly, making little noise, so that we could be calm and focused in order to get enlightened. But every day that monk behind me kept on clearing his throat as we walked along. That justifies murder, doesn't it? <laughs> Naturally, we didn't act on these impulses. We let them pass, which was a little bit of awakening. There was enough good karma to have an established sense of morality and even mindfulness. But it blew apart the idea that you don't have ill will just because in, solita in solitude, no one's pushing your buttons. So in the context of training, the violent impulse was useful. I had to let go of my idea of myself as being a reasonable, easygoing kind of guy and focus on the tendency of ill will. And further, when I acknowledged that solitary practice, 
hadn't made it any easier to share the planet for a couple of hours with another with other harmless being human beings who shared my interest in awakening the paradigm of mind cultivation had to shift i began to understand that you don't get out of comma by avoiding it